A few years ago, I traveled around the Pearl River Delta of southern China, reporting on a remarkable economic success story. With the population the size of Britain's, this small triangle of land and water encompassing Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou is considered the world's biggest megacity. It has soaked up over a trillion dollars of foreign direct investment since 1980. Much of that money has gone into factories and workshops like the ones run by Foxconn, which makes iPhones for Apple. When I visited their massive complex in Shenzhen, I saw a highly sophisticated manufacturing and assembly system that deployed over 100,000 workers with clock-like precision. I traveled every nook of this vital but low-lying part of the global supply chain, marveling at the world's longest sea crossing, shuffling through its bustling ports and ferries, zipping across on its excellent subways and high-speed trains. It seemed then that nothing could hold back the region's inexorable rise, but climate change. Could prove its undoing. The rising tides and freakish storms caused by global warming may prove even more powerful than the Delta's economic engine. Given that this region makes up a tenth of China's economy, the country's leaders can't let it happen. But they may have little choice. They may have to find ways to adapt. I'm Vijay Vaidyaswaran, global energy and climate innovation editor at The Economist. And I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we take a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies needed to avert extreme climate change. But some disasters can't be completely averted. Climate change has already heated the world by 1.2 degrees Celsius, causing an increase in heat waves, droughts, floods, forest fires, and more. Besides, people's lives are already changing. So that leaves a clear question. Can human society adapt to a warming world? In this episode, we'll be hearing from China, where a new type of sponge city is being designed to prevent severe flooding. And we'll ask Bill Gates about the importance of adaptation. Adaptation deserves more funding, more visibility. But I want to start by asking what we mean by adaptation. And here to help me are Oliver Morton. And Katrine Brahe, my colleagues and fellow climate watchers at the Economist, welcome to you both. Hi, Vijay. It's nice to be here. Hello, Vijay. Much of our program thus far in this podcast has been talking about mitigation. That is, what do you do to reduce emissions? But we really need to talk about adaptation, don't we? We absolutely do, Vijay, because mitigation stops future climate warming. It doesn't do anything about what's happening today, or indeed what's happening tomorrow, or indeed most of what's happening out to about 2040. Certainly, at the moment, there is a strong need for adaptation in a lot of areas because otherwise, people are just going to suffer too much. So, what are the different flavors of adaptation, Kat? Adaptation takes all sorts of forms. So you've got things like heat waves and floods. Storms, hurricanes, cyclones, etc. So, populations that are at the sharp end of these impacts need to be more resilient to them. So, for instance, houses, cities, infrastructure—all of this needs to be adapted to the climate that we anticipate having in the decades to come. So, what kind of adaptation measures are we actually talking about to avoid some of these impacts? Well, one of the things you can do is look at farming methods and try to work out how they can be made. 
trade resistant to expected changes in extremes. You could look at crop choices. Another thing is many people in the poor parts of the world live with very poor amounts of weather forecasting. In a world of climate extremes, weather forecasts can change your life and hold your livelihood. So getting people better understanding of the weather to come is one form of adaptation. What about extreme heat, something that significant parts of the world are likely to endure? Are there particular forms of adaptation that look promising? There have been some remarkable successes. The example that immediately springs to mind is France, where in 2003, 15,000 people died as a result of a heat wave. And France instituted a variety of heat plans which involved warning people of extreme heat in weather forecasts, making water available for homeless people, apps that tell you where cool places are in the city, and also lengthening the opening hours of public buildings that have air conditioning so that people can take refuge there. And the benefits of these plans have been quite notable. So for instance, in 2019, another heat wave saw just 1,500 people die. So that's a tenfold decrease in the deaths on the previous time. It's difficult to compare across these specific events, but it's still a remarkable decline. One of the things that comes out for me really clearly out of that example is that people have a tendency to think of adaptation somewhat in terms of stuff, of infrastructure, of seawalls and things like that. And what the French example and other examples show is that there's an awful lot of systems thinking in adaptation. You have to have that level of social mobilization for some of this stuff. So that was largely a systems change and it had a big impact. But are there more hands-on approaches to adaptation? Uh, A small behavior change won't have a big impact on severe drought, for instance. What can be done there? You can adapt your irrigation infrastructure. You can bring more water in from somewhere else. There's there's a striking example, it must have been 15 years ago, of a water shortage in Spain, I believe, that was helped by water actually being shipped across the Mediterranean from France. So there are things that you can do to bring water to a region. But I imagine you're not going to be able to do that everywhere. I think the wider point here is that adaptation is really very location-specific in a way that mitigation is not, right? You cut emissions somewhere and it has an impact on the atmosphere globally, whereas adaptation, it's very much down to every country, city, region, locality, looking at their specific circumstances in terms of what the infrastructure is, where the population is, what the geography, etc. is, and what the anticipated future impacts of climate change are. And based on that, building their own package of adaptation and resilience. Well, on that theme, Kat, one country that has been thinking seriously about adaptation is China. As I had mentioned at the top of the show, Densely populated and economically vibrant regions of the country may be deluged by rising tides within decades if temperatures continue to rise as they're set to do. But the country is looking for ways to adapt. Our China correspondent, Stephanie Studer, has been looking at an eye-catching innovation to help Chinese cities cope with extreme weather. The video on Chinese social media is scary and utterly compelling. A small silver car is half submerged in a torrent of brown water surging down a city street. Onlookers holding umbrellas, themselves knee-deep in the water, shout in alarm. A woman clings to the car door handles as she struggles against the surge. She's forced to let go with one hand, then 
to the distress of everyone watching the other. She's swept away and disappears from view. The deluge in the central city of Zhengzhou in July left nearly 300 dead. It's just one city where flood control systems have been overrun as storms become more powerful. 24 provinces suffered severe flooding this summer, 33 rivers swelled beyond historic levels, and 23 million people were affected, according to official figures. China is vulnerable to extreme rainfall as global temperatures rise. Estimates suggest a 25% increase by 2050. Southern cities are used to monsoons, but more northerly cities are also being deluged. This month, 100,000 people were evacuated from flooded areas of northern Shanxi province. So how should the country adapt? The idea of Sponge City is to live with water, to adapt to water, not fight against water. Sponge cities are one answer. Dr. Yu Kongjian is a landscape architect and creator of the Sponge City concept. Although he says he's merely adapting an ancient principle. For thousands of years, the Chinese farmers know how to live with water because China is under the influence of monsoon climate, which means you have very heavy rainfall during the summer, but you are dry during most of the other time. But the speed of China's economic growth has meant the old ways of adapting to extreme weather were lost. From year 2000, during the time when China speed up the urbanization, we paved over the lakes, paved over the wetland, we channelized the river. I immediately feel that China is going to have the problem of flood. And it's been proven. 20 years later, now 65% of Chinese cities are suffering flood because the city are built over wetland. One of the best things cities can do is to become more porous. By 2030, China wants to cover 30 cities with sponge-like features that could soak up or reuse 80% of rainfall. Number one rule, the sponge city means permeable natural ground, whether it is wetland, whether it is a permeable soil, or whether it is a pond to retain water on site. Permeable pavements allow water to move through them and green roofs use plants and soil to collect and filter rainwater. Lower-tech solutions help too. Planting trees and shrubs along streets can reduce runoff. The buildings, the development should be adapt to water instead of fighting against water. So it is adaptive, soft landscape. It is not just about a piece of city or piece of land. It is about the whole system. China's Sponge City plan has an estimated price tag of $1 trillion. Jonathan Wetzel of the McKinsey Global Institute, a co-chair of the Urban China Initiative, says it's worth the expense. The cities that are engaged in this report that their expenditures compared to doing it the old way are lower. In the case of one project in Wuhan, one of the pilot cities is reporting hundreds of millions of dollars of savings relative to traditional model of flood management infrastructure. So like it or not, sponge cities seem to be here to stay. China will continue to push the idea through building codes. But there are problems. Smaller cities may struggle to find the money to adapt. 
there is going to be a cost for this investment. And the investment can't be equally spread over the entire population. So as I said, small cities are going to have much more problems than big cities in terms of funding any kind of infrastructure. And I think that financial adaptation tools to mitigate the risk for the lower income populations in particular and migrant populations will be one of the challenges. Questions also remain as to whether nature-based solutions alone can handle the volume of stormwater inundating Chinese cities. Dr. Yu says Zhengzhou, the city that had the worst floods this summer, is not a true sponge city. Even the best planned city will struggle in the worst conditions. He believes the requirement for Chinese cities to maintain 30% of the city as green space is enough. But as Jonathan Wetzel points out, that assumes rules are respected. I think it works largely when the government is prepared to put standards in place, which are going to be of disobey this at your peril kind of standards so that they will shut down factories, that they will tear down buildings, stop construction. Now, historically, government has actually not been willing to do that for a large portion of the economy, that the economic growth has come before environmental and social issues. While sponge cities are an attractive concept, the key to saving lives is early warning. The forecast for heavy rains in Zhengzhou on July 19th was largely ignored by the city's authorities. They also lacked practical emergency plans. Its 10 million inhabitants didn't know how to react. Days later, more than 300,000 residents of Ningbo, another Chinese city, were relocated after the first warnings of a typhoon. Despite widespread flooding, no deaths were reported. Better emergency planning will do more than urban design to eliminate the need for the kind of heroics on display in the viral video. When a quick-thinking bystander leapt into the raging water to pull the submerged woman to safety. While China's sponge cities are vast in scale, they're only one element in the adaptation story. Next up, we'll get a broader perspective from Bill Gates on which innovations he thinks are most important. But first, a reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. The latest issue looks at the next wave of economics, as well as wave power and the tricky business of servicing electric cars. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe. And you can find that link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get a wider perspective on what the priorities should be for adaptation. Bill Gates has been meeting world leaders in the run-up to the COP26 Climate Summit, which opens in Glasgow next week. The co-founder of Microsoft has personally invested $2 billion in new climate technology. He's also written a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. So he's been thinking a lot about how to mitigate climate change. But what about adapting to its inevitable and unavoidable consequences? Zanny Minton Beddoes, The Economist Editor-in-Chief, has been speaking with him. In your book, which I have here, you have, I think, one chapter on adaptation and rather more on mitigation, something that I think you yourself say you now rather regret. Did you pay enough attention to adaptation? Is the world paying enough attention to adaptation? 
Well, obviously, we have to do the two in parallel. The better you do on mitigation, the less you have to do on adaptation. Adaptation is something that I helped chair a committee, brought people together, did a very good report. And no, it didn't get the same visibility that some of the mitigation work is getting. There are some clear priorities in adaptation, like creating seeds that are more productive, can deal with higher temperature, can deal with droughts and even floods that increase because of climate change. In the same way that in 2015, I was stunned that R&D budgets relative to climate innovation weren't going up, the R&D budgets relative to adaptation are not going up enough. Now, at this COP, we will have some announcements about money going to the so-called CG system, which is part of the seed innovation work. There's a lot more deciding what you do with sea level rise, but no, adaptation deserves more funding, more visibility. So let's break adaptation into different priorities. And you talked about seeds, and that's something that is going to be focused at at this COP. In agriculture, for all those many hundreds of millions of people who are going to be in the most arid parts of the world, is that the top priority? Oh, by far. I mean, eating is a fairly primary human need. Uh, (laughs) And if you don't get enough to eat, then you get instability and mass migration. And there are parts of the world with the temperature increase where you literally will have to change crops altogether. We can make maize deal with a certain amount of temperature increase, but then at some point you've got to go to sorghum instead. The beauty of better seeds is that it also reduces the pressure to deforest. It's a mitigation effort at the same time as it's an adaptation effort. And in fact, the R&D required trying to get the world up to like a billion and a half a year put into that CG system. And so it's not like replacing every steel plant in the world, every cement plant in the world type spending. And yet the impact is very dramatic on both sides. How far off the billion and a half a year are we now? We're below a billion. That should be something that could be achieved. No, CG funding as a metric for funding the highest priority for adaptation, yes, that should be possible. And it will get a lot of visibility and some commitments at this COP. Well, let's hope that that one is achieved. What about the other area of adaptation, which is urban adaptation? So many people live in cities. Many, many of the world's megalopolises are close to sea level. What needs to be done there in the coming decades? Yeah, that's very location-specific. There are some areas where you can actually wall the city off and the water doesn't come in. And there's others where, because of the bedrock, you can't wall it off. And so you just have to decide, are you going to build things on stilts or are you going to move inland? But you have to pick a time frame and look at the specific geology in that location. There is no magic seed, magic vaccine type solution for sea level rise. We're not going to start swimming around to our houses, to our jobs and things. You know, when I have a conversation (laughs) with you, nothing is off limits. So I just assume it might be swimming. When somebody comes to me with that proposal, I might be the first to fund it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, there will be parts of the world that will be effectively no longer inhabitable. 
adaptation presumably would also include moving. Yeah, I mean, the Neil Stevenson novel coming out in a few months, you'll have people wearing what's called an earth suit. And actually, during the Ebola epidemic, we created these cooling outfits because when you went in to treat the patients, you were overheating. It really determined how long you could stand there and do your work. So, yes, in the summer near the equator, there will be places that you cannot work outdoors during the day. Uh, And so what that means for farming and construction and just general quality of life is pretty dramatic. Since we seem to be making less rapid progress than we need to on the mitigation side, on getting to net zero, presumably adaptation is going to loom ever larger. If you had to have three priorities, three innovations in the adaptation space, what would they be? Well, I wish there were more than just the improved seeds that were very dramatic in terms of the R&D clearly can succeed and the benefits to the poor world farmers of that will be gigantic, even if you take climate out of the equation. It's just a ridiculously underinvested area. Once you get past seeds, boy, it gets into irrigation, water management, providing low-cost air conditioning so quality of life doesn't go down. You know, there's lots of data about worker productivity in higher heat, even test scores in higher heat. And so cooling systems are a big part of adaptation. Then you have migration, which isn't a very popular topic, but you would leave both domestically the areas where the sea rise is causing a problem, and you would head away from the equator where the extreme temperatures will be so problematic. Well, that's given how politically difficult the third one is. I think that reminds us how important the first is. So that's what we need to achieve at Glasgow. Well, we need to drive the mitigation work forward. We have a lot more attention to innovation for mitigation now than we had six years ago. It's still not enough. So if you take the rate of improvement of paying attention to it, you might say, okay, we're we're on a good path. But it's still not nearly enough investment in any of the stages of innovation, including basic research. Either for mitigation or indeed. Either one. And, you know, the fact that that adaptation report was such a lonely thing and hasn't really been covered, I would say, with much visibility, that is a bit tragic. It fits in with the general neglect of health and other problems in developing countries. Well, on that depressing note, thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you. So Bill Gates believes there's not enough focus on adaptation and that this could have a negative impact on humanity. Kat and Ollie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's difficult to disagree with him on that point. There's definitely not enough visibility on adaptation. One thing that struck me at the end there, he was talking specifically about the visibility for solutions and and obviously the need for funding for adaptation. There's also another dimension of this, which is there isn't always enough visibility on the things that need to be adapted to. And so one example of this, for instance, is that there's very little, if any, data on whether or not heat deaths are 
increasing or decreasing in Africa. And yet there's really very good reason to believe that they're probably on the rise. So that's an example of a place where undoubtedly adaptation is required, but we don't even know that it's required. I was struck by the importance that he placed on crop enhancement, presumably through selective breeding and genetic modification and now gene editing. And it's it's really worth noting that most of these technologies have so far been used mainly to increase the productivity of semi-industrial cropping systems, both in developed and developing countries. But if you use them to actually improve crops that people rely on on an everyday basis, as well as export crops, you really can then see ways to get quite a lot of adaptive bonus out of a really small investment in the International Crop Enhancement Lab System, which is CG or CGR. So I thought that his talking about getting a billion or so more for CGR out of Glasgow was very exciting. But some of these approaches aren't allowed in Europe and other parts of the world, Ali. Yeah, and they're not maybe needed in Europe and other parts of the world. And if Europe wants to go its own way and say it won't sully itself with these things, I think that's wrong. But there's a democratic principle involved. What I really object to is the idea that a European reticence on this subject might then stymie attempts to make the fruits of this technology available to the people who need them. GM technologies should be an absolute no-brainer for adapting crops. There have been some striking successes with adapting crops. I'm thinking particularly of rice in Southeast Asia, where labs have been breeding varieties of rice that are able to grow in saltier and saltier levels of water. There comes a point in all of this where, interestingly, you start to hit on limits of adaptation. You won't, presumably, be able to come up with a variety of rice that can just be grown in plain seawater. Is there a point at which no further investments in this area, adaptation more broadly, will make much difference? In other words, if the problem is as huge as we all worry it might be, surely there must be a point at which the sea levels will overcome our defenses, for example. Tell me about the limits of adaptation. Yeah, so rice is one example of a limit of adaptation. Another would be extreme heat. So the climate models tell us that as global average temperatures start to approach two and a half degrees above pre-industrial, parts of the tropics will experience temperatures during the daytime, which are effectively physiologically unlivable for humans. So that's a really good example of the fact that in some places, adaptation will no longer be a tenable way forward. But that doesn't mean the need for adaptation on a global scale won't continue to rise because as some places become completely untenable, other places will become very difficult to live in and they will require adaptation of their own. And places that are unlivable as a result of sea level rise, for instance, because the coast has been so eroded that entire towns or villages fall into the waves, You're starting to talk about the ultimate form of adaptation, which is known as managed retreat. Basically, people need to get the hell out. Yeah, but even that can't work on all scales. I mean, take an example, not a non-human example. Imagine some goats happily on a mountain in the range that suits them in temperature terms. And things start heating up and the goats move further up the mountain and they heat further and the goats move further up the mountain. And eventually they reach the top of the mountain and things are still getting hotter and your goat doesn't have anywhere to go anymore. And what applies to mountain goats applies conceptually to the entire structure of human systems thinking. The top of the mountain or the pole. Yes, absolutely. Right. So 
we can't adapt to all of these problems and we can't prevent all of them either. Is there a third option? What about using technology to fix the temperature of the earth? Geoengineering. Ola, you've written a book about this. Uh, What do we mean by geoengineering? People use geoengineering to describe a large variety of things. And what they have in common is that they decouple the temperature from the amount of emissions to date. And the most controversial of these proposals are those that tend to do this by reducing the amount by which sunlight warms the earth in the first place. And how would you do this? What does this look like? Well, one option would be to brighten low platforms of marine cloud that you see around the oceans by adding a certain sort of cloud seeding. It is thought that that could be used to cool off the oceans and by implication the land nearby. Another form which has received a lot of press recently is the idea of injecting a fine mist of particles a popular candidate are sulfates into the stratosphere where they would basically spread out and form a sunshade, bouncing the sun's rays back out into space before they get a chance to warm the atmosphere. Nothing could possibly go wrong with any of this, right, Kat? Look, it's, in my view, a very embryonic technology that needs to be explored, but sometimes I fear receives undue attention relative to the amount of research that has gone into it. So it's definitely something that we need to understand a lot better than we do today. But it shouldn't be seen as an alternative to reducing emissions. There's also some concerns about the side effects of this, what it will do to global rain systems, and then the fact that it doesn't address ocean acidification at all. That's all true. But no one in the small community of scholars who are actually looking at this does believe that it should be an alternative to mitigation. The worry is that if the world is presented with this technology in some way, it will then reduce its mitigation. And that would be something that I would argue against very seriously. But at the same time, I think not looking at technologies which, if other things go wrong, will give you some level of purchase on the system. I think that would be a mistake. The interesting thing about solar geoengineering is that in some ways, if it were done well, it presents the same kinds of problems and challenges as mitigation does. You need a global system. You need everybody to agree on how to do this, and it needs to be deployed in a way that is equitable and just to the entire planet. And that's a challenge for mitigation and I believe is also going to be a challenge for solar geoengineering. So there is a risk that it could be done without that kind of consensus. It's certainly plausible, technically feasible for a relatively small entity such as one large nation or a group of nations to embark on such an escapade without the approval of others. So the sort of geoengineering that you and I might feel the world needs isn't necessarily the sort that it will get. What I'm hearing is that though we have an episode devoted entirely to adaptation, the thread coming through is the sheer importance of actually reigning in warming and not just waiting to deal with its consequences. And of course, as we heard at the end, we certainly need to have that portfolio of approaches and to develop them so that we have them in hand for the future. Now, the world isn't all bad news. In the final part of each episode, I want one of us to bring in something encouraging, a story we've read or a deeper trend we've observed or a, a positive angle we haven't yet thought about that relates to climate change. Now, can we follow on from our various apocalyptic thoughts in this episode to something positive? Who's got something for me? Yeah, I'll jump in. I read about a research project that's been going on during the pandemic in the UK where a team has been testing 
food labeling. So how to basically nudge people towards more ecological diets or more climate-friendly diets. And what they did was one of these classic psychology experiments. They gave people fake money. They presented them with fake goods that they could buy in the supermarket, and they labeled all of these goods. I think there were about 2,000 different supermarket items. They gave various labels based on greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity impact, water pollution, water use. And then they sat back and watched how their consumers spent their quote unquote money. And what they found in this highly controlled experiment was a statistically significant, they say, shift towards ecologically greener foods, including, and this was the interesting bit, a 10% reduction in meat consumption. So they see this as evidence that better food labeling in supermarkets could, in fact, be an effective nudge. And just to take this into the real world, they are now testing it in real world cafeterias. So food labeling is a nudge towards a climate-friendly diet. The level of my excitement about the evidence that this works to a statistically significant um, extent in a controlled experiment is, is hard to express. Oh, you cynic. <laughs> I, I'm frankly very excited. I think uh, this ticks a, a few boxes for me. One is that labeling does make a difference. We know this because consumer products companies avoid labeling uh, and did for many years things like sugar, fat, and so on because they know it works. And secondly, this gives people choice. People don't have to be nudged. The beauty of nudges is that you can push back against the nudge or resist it. So as someone who refuses to be bullied and browbeaten by the social police into doing things, I'm a huge fan of being nudged in the right direction. How, how do nudges work? Is, is it a carrot or a stick in your classification? It's being poked with a carrot, I think, is the way to put it. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of To a Lesser Degree. Next week, as we approach the closely watched COP26 meeting of governments to discuss how to tackle climate change, I'll be asking John Kerry, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate, how this conference of the parties might spur better climate policy around the world. I think Glasgow is going to produce the most significant private sector engagement on this issue that anybody could have seen or has seen or might even have imagined. Join us next Monday for that and more. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway, Pete Naughton, and Hannah Mourinho. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Vaitiswaran, and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See you then. <laughs>